You know, sometimes I think that we read that scripture in Isaiah 6 or sing that song and wish that, you know, we could have that kind of experience that Isaiah had where he just saw the Lord for who he is in his throne. And um, the truth of the matter, God has revealed himself to us in mighty, mighty ways just as strongly in Jesus. And he has provided a way for us to see him. In that way, to enter the very throne room that Isaiah was allowed to go in, that has been provided for us through Jesus' blood. And when we see Jesus for who he is and understand really what he has done, we have the same experience that Isaiah had before the throne. We say, woe is Lord. We see the holiness, the majesty, the glory of God and our condition in light of that, and it just makes us fall on our faces. And so that's why we go through God's word and read it because he has revealed himself in Jesus, in his word. And so we pray that God would open our eyes to see that because when we see it, we are changed. Before I get into today's message, I want to let you men know that um, in our men's class on Wednesday nights, we've actually started a new study, and it is great. It's called Crisis 101, and it just helps us uh, learn how to trust God more. Because really, I mean, if you can really trust God, the rest is easy. I mean, it is an incredible thing to be able to trust God. And so if you haven't been coming or um, have missed some, this is a great opportunity for you men to jump right into that. It's a great thing. I actually got to apply um, what we saw in it this past Wednesday night this morning. The first thing we learned in that was that God means for you to be where you are. No matter what situation you're in, God means for you to be where you are. Um, Something happened this morning in the early service. Uh, My gifts are mostly in writing rather than speaking. I'm a writer first, and speaker is way down on the thing. And so when I prepare a sermon, I write the whole thing out because that's where I'm able to get inspiration and really hear the Lord and and let my words come out is when I write it. And so then I will take what I've written and make kind of an outline, notes on it, and then bring it up here. And that's what I preach from. I am not good at all at just getting up here and speaking off the top of my head. That is not the gift that God has given me. Well, this morning... Everything's working fine. I get up. We're done with worship. I get up to come preach. And I, you've probably seen I use an iPad where all my notes are typed into. Well, I get up and I turn my iPad on and nothing happens. It just zapped totally out. And so this is, I've got no notes. I've got nothing. And I'm about to panic. I'm like, how am I going to pull this off? And then... It came to my mind from Wednesday night, God means for you to be right where you are. And I went, man. And so this peace came over me, and I was able to get up here, and I I winged it as best I could. And it really wasn't winging it. God just gave me the words, brought to mind the things that he had already given me before, and it was good. So anyway, um, thank God for the cloud because I was able to go back and retrieve retrieve those notes. And... uh, I got them in paper form now, so y'all get the full version, okay? Because there was some stuff that I forgot in the thing. Y'all get the full one-hour version today. I'm just kidding. Some of the kids were like, what? <laughs> kidding, kids. It's an hour 15 minutes, so. 
No. All right, Romans chapter 10. Today we're going to finish out this chapter, and then we'll only have six more to go. So picking up where we left off last week, we're going to start with verse 14 and read through to the end. So let's all stand together as we receive the word of the Lord today. Paul writes, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. But I say, surely they have never heard, have they? Indeed, they have. Their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the end of the world. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? First Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding will I anger you. And Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. But as for Israel, he says, all the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Let's pray. God, I pray by your spirit, you would give us a revelation of you and who you are and what you have done. God, uh, that's likened to the revelation that Isaiah had that we just sang about. God, that we may be changed by that. Uh, So, Lord, I pray that your will will be done and uh, you will be glorified in it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All through this letter so far, mostly in chapters 9 and 10, Paul has been dealing with the issue of Israel's unbelief. It is a terrible, terrible reality that Paul is wrestling with, how to understand, feel about, and respond to the unbelief and lostness of those who have been known as God's chosen people. By rejecting Jesus as Messiah, Savior, and Lord, they are accursed and cut off from eternal life. This has been and will be Paul's burden all the way through to the end of chapter 11. And he comes back to it over and over again. In verse 27 of chapter 9, he says, Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant who will be saved. And in verse 1 of 2 of chapter 10, he says, My heart's desire and my prayer is for their salvation. For they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. And then in what we just read in verse 16, he says, They did not all heed the gospel. Paul is jerking the rug out from under those who think that they are good with God just because of their heritage. Those who think that they are God's chosen people just because they are natural Israelites. In chapters 9 and 10, those chapters have been about Paul explaining how this is not the case and how it really never has been the case from God's perspective. The story of Israel in the Old Testament was just one part of God's bigger story. Yes, God has always desired to have a people for himself to represent him on earth. But it was never 
going to be a people who are defined by what they did and how they looked on the outside. God's people would always be defined by what he did supernaturally to them on the inside. You know, there are many today who still just don't get this. They view biblical history as a a collection of stories and events that are about nothing more than the stories and events themselves, rather than being vital parts of a much bigger story. They still view Israel today from that narrow Old Covenant perspective. But this is what Paul has been pointing out all through his letter to the Romans. And what he does here in the last verses of chapter 10 is show us once more that the reason why much of Israel does not have a share in salvation is because they do not believe in Jesus as the Messiah. Verse 16, let's look at that again. This is actually pretty interesting. He says, however, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? Paul quotes Isaiah 53, 1 here, where he says, Lord, who has believed our report? And in doing so, he calls the prophet as a witness to the fact that very few are believing what he and Paul both preached. Say, wait a minute, what Isaiah and Paul both preached? Yes. Isaiah 53 is all about the coming of Christ, his suffering, his resurrection, and the doctrine of justification. It's the chapter that contains the famous words, he was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the chastisement of our well-being fell upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Isaiah was preaching the gospel to Israel, and he begins it by saying in verse 1 that very few would believe it. Paul is basically saying that, yes, there is still a plan and a promise for Israel. God's faithfulness has not been undermined. But what you have always thought of as Israel is not how God defines Israel. And then Paul defines who Israel is from God's perspective in chapters 9, 10, and 11. It is those who have accepted Jesus as the one true Messiah. That's how God defines Israel. That's according to Paul and according, as we just saw, to Isaiah as well. Which means then that nothing has changed. I mean, nothing or no one is being replaced here. This is the way it has always been from God's point of view. Also in this text, Paul eliminates any excuse that some may have as to why they don't believe. Some may claim that they just never had the chance to believe the way that people do now. The Egyptian might be that God hasn't put in place the prerequisites for salvation. Maybe some Israelites, or anyone for that matter, haven't believed because they didn't have what they needed in order to be held accountable for their unbelief. Paul removes that that objection by spelling out the steps to salvation that apply to everyone. It shows that Israel had it too. Let's look at it again, starting in verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him in whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless 
they are sent. So here are the prerequisites. In your notes there, these are the requirements for salvation. Number one, to be saved, you have to call on Christ. To call, you have to believe in Christ. To believe, you have to hear the word of Christ. To hear, someone has to proclaim the message. And then to be able to proclaim the message with authority, someone has to be sent by God. The point Paul makes here is that all of these have but been put into place for Israel. Therefore, they are held accountable for their unbelief. Look at verse 18 again. He says, but I say, surely they have never heard, have they? Indeed, they have. Their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. He's quoting Psalm 19.4 here, talking about how the voice of God's messengers whom he sent have gone out to all the ends of the earth. And then verse 19. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? Well, first Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding will I anger you. Now he's quoting Moses from Deuteronomy 32:21. You know how you've heard me say a lot that everything in the Bible points to the gospel, points to Jesus. Well, that is exactly the point that Paul is making here as he is quoting all these Old Testament scriptures in this passage. He quotes from Deuteronomy, from Psalms, and from Isaiah, and in doing so, he's saying that All of Israel has heard the gospel because it has been preached to her all throughout her history. The gospel did not start being announced in the first century. It has been preached by God through his prophets and the stories and events that he orchestrated in the Old Testament ever since the beginning. In the case of Moses here, he was prophesying about what was going to happen with that. The fact that pagan, uncircumcised, unclean, uninstructed Gentiles are believing the gospel and inheriting the promises that were made to Israel was predicted by Moses. Paul is saying that because of the fact that Moses did predict it and because that is That very thing is happening all around them now. That should awaken them to the truth of the gospel that they're rejecting. Israel's accountability is actually greater because of the Gentile response. Isaiah prophesies the same thing in verse 20. And Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. Paul is saying that the Gentiles are finding salvation in Jesus Christ, just like Isaiah said they would. They are being saved through faith alone and not by the works of the law. All of this was a megaphone to make the gospel understandable to the Jews, but they still rejected it. And so they are held accountable for their unbelief, unable to receive the promises that they assumed were theirs just because of their heritage. Now, I hear people say today, well, I believe God still has something in store for Israel. Yeah, he does. 
but it won't be anything good if they do not accept Jesus as the Messiah. There is no other way. Now, I want to kind of shift to something else in this text. Everything that Paul has written here highlights something that has to be addressed. And I don't know if it jumped out at you or not, if you noticed this, but there's something in this that would appear to undermine some of the things that Paul said back in chapter 9. You know, one of the things that Paul stresses is that Israel's unbelief and lostness does not mean that God's word has failed that he's not coming through on his promises to them. And his first argument to this truth is built on the doctrine in chapter 9 of sovereign, free, unconditional election. In other words, the unbelief and lostness of Israel does not undermine God's faithfulness to them because he is sovereign over their unbelief and has built it into his plans for them from the beginning. In verse 15 of chapter 9, God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Therefore, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. The sermons that I preached on chapter 9 several weeks ago have initiated more discussion and more controversy here than any other sermon I have ever preached. And I knew it would going into it. I mean, I told you right up front that this was going to stir some folks up. And it did. The truth is, I didn't say much more than what the Scripture says. I just basically let it speak for itself. I don't believe I said anything outside of what Romans 9 clearly says. Paul states things very plainly and very boldly in that chapter. And I believe he had to be that way because of such a a weighty topic. That is a hard truth that you cannot afford to just be kind of ambiguous about. You just got to come out and say it plainly. Some of us have been shaken by this truth of God's sovereignty over man's belief and unbelief. We have run from it. We have pretended that it wasn't there. And we have argued against it. But some, even who have done that, have finally submitted to it. And discovered it to be one of the firmest and most solid bricks that make up their fragile house of faith. We see now with trembling joy that without it, none of us would have ever believed. And we rest upon it as the blessed assurance that we will endure to the end. But notice how Paul describes Israel's unbelief. In chapter 10 here, it's very different from Romans 9. There, God is portrayed with absolute sovereignty over human will and its unbelief. But look at how Romans 10.21 describes God's relation to unbelief. God says, all day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Now, even back in the first sermon on, sermon on Romans 9, I said that the Scripture always puts the blame on the people for their unbelief and not on God. And here's an example of that. 
This is a picture of God beckoning, calling, inviting, and wooing through his prophets and preachers. But the hearers don't believe. And it's not because God has hardened their heart, but because they are disobedient and obstinate. Now, my goal here is not to analyze how this can be, but to urge us all to embrace this paradox that we find in Scripture. Y'all know what a paradox is? The definition is there in your notes. It's something that is made up of two opposite things that seem to be impossible, but is actually true or possible. In the Scriptures, we find the paradox of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And the sad thing is many people will embrace one over the other, but not both. Some will embrace God's sovereignty over human will and say that it is wrong to portray God with outstretched arms, inviting everyone to come to him. And others will embrace the responsibility of man and say that if if God calls, invites, and beckons, then he can't really be sovereign over man's will, that man can self-determine his own salvation, and so God really isn't in control of all things. Both of these are tragic mistakes. It's tragic because one group rejects something deep and precious that God has revealed revealed himself to us for our hope, our strength, our security, and our joy, his absolute sovereignty. I mean, we need a reliable, firm rock that we can stand on in a world that seems to be so utterly out of control. But the other group who embraces God's sovereignty will at times reject something very crucial to understanding God's justice in dealing with people. And they also fail to see how we should plead with people and invite them with tears to come to Christ. This paradox is the answer to one of the main questions that comes up When you talk about election, some will say, well, if God has already predetermined who will and won't be saved, then why should we even witness to people? Why share the gospel if that's already been determined? Well, the short and simple answer to that is because God tells us to. I mean, that should be enough right there. The longer answer is because God stretches his arms out to everyone and invites them in. And the way that he has chosen to operate in this world is through his people. And so he won't be inviting anyone in if we are not inviting anyone in. The fact that he has predetermined that some will answer his call should motivate us to go out and call him. Because we're pretty much guaranteed that somebody's going to say yes to that call. And so my aim is not to explain this paradox, but to proclaim it. In the hope that the Holy Spirit will cause you to submit to God's word, whether you can make sense of it and explain it or not. Now this is one of those things about God that you just have to be able to say, I don't know. I don't know. I can't explain it, but I trust it 
because his word says it. This is what Paul was talking about back in chapter 9. In verse 19, he addresses this question. That if God is sovereign over everyone's unbelief, then how can he find fault in anyone or hold them accountable for that unbelief? How can he blame it on them? Do you remember Paul's answer to that question? He doesn't try to explain it. He simply says, who are you to question God and how he operates? There are some things about God that are just too big for us, things that we will never be able to make complete sense of this side of heaven, and we need to be okay with that. As I said before, if God is someone that I could fully understand on my level, that's pretty scary because that means I don't need him, right? There's got to be something bigger and more outside of us that we can rely and trust on. There is a point beyond which that we can answer back to God and question his justice. He is the potter. We are just the clay. And he doesn't require that we understand it, just that we trust it. So let me highlight this particular paradox by showing you some verses in the Bible. And these aren't all the verses where this is evident, just some of them. And this is in your notes. And these verses will be up on the screen, so don't try to follow along. You can go back and look it up yourself if you want to. But in Matthew eleven twenty five, Jesus says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. But then just three verses down, he calls out, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He has hidden the truth from some, and he invites all. He invites everyone. In John 6, 35, Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But just under that, in verse 37, he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I certainly will not cast out. So, all are invited to Christ, and the ones who come are the ones that the Father gives. One more. In Acts 13, 38 and 39, Paul says to the synagogue in Antioch, Therefore let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and through him everyone who believes is freed. But then down further in that chapter in verse 48, it says, And as many as had been appointed to eternal life, believed. So all are invited to believe and be forgiven and as many as were appointed did believe. It's a paradox. These seemingly two contradictory points both come together in God's word and in doing so they point us somewhere. They point us to what everything else in the Bible should point us to. They point us to the cross. The paradox points to the cross because the cross of Christ is the ultimate paradox. It's where God was both merciful and just. It's where he poured out his wrath and he poured out 
his love. It's where Jesus knew no sin and he became everyone's sin. It's where the punishment of the guilty was poured out on the innocent. It's where the guilty can find forgiveness. The dirty are found clean and the sinner stands as righteous before God. Remember, a paradox is not two things that contradict each other as if if one is true, the other can't be. It's two seemingly contradictory things that are reconciled together. It's not either or, it's both and. God wants everyone to know about the reconciliation of the cross. He wants everyone to know how someone as unworthy and sinful as they are can be made right with him. He wants everyone to know that everything in their life that seems so out of control and doesn't make sense can find every bit of its meaning in Jesus. Well, how will they know? People know the good news of the cross because effective messengers of the gospel are sent by God. That's how they know. And right here, another message is needed. But I'm going to leave it to the Holy Spirit to preach that one to you. And he will if you will say, here I am, Lord, send me. There are blessings untold found in being a God-sent messenger of the gospel. And the way to know if you are one of the sent ones is that the Holy Spirit lives inside you. And if you have trusted Jesus for your salvation, he does. You are called, credentialed, and equipped to be an effective messenger of the gospel sent by God in Christ alone. That is your call to go call others. In verse 15 of chapter 10, Paul quotes Isaiah 52, 7, where he says, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of great things. Listen, folks. Beautiful feet are not soft clean, manicured, well-tanned feet. They're not. Not in the kingdom. They are like the dirty, worn, cracked, leathery, scarred feet from many miles of trekking into remote places with good news that would not be heard any other way. Bringers of this good news are precious people. People of whom this world is not worthy. Precious and beautiful for their worn out bodies in service to their king. My prayer is that this would happen with us more and more. That we would be so captured by the good news ourselves that we can't help but tell others about it too. Jesus said, The harvest is ripe. Why? Why? How is the harvest ripe? Because God is already predestined for some to answer the call. There's others out there waiting right now, waiting for that call, waiting for that message. And as soon as they hear the sound, 
they're there. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray that God would send workers out into his harvest. Here I am, Lord. Send me. Let's pray. God, we can see now what an incredible privilege and opportunity it would be to go tell others, to go get in on what you are already doing. Lord, I pray right now, God, Lord, in order to be able to do that, in order to get excited about it and get on fire about telling other people about it, we need to see you for who you are. We need to understand exactly what it is that you have done, God, for us. And so I pray for whatever barrier may be in someone's mind right now, God, whatever they're missing about this incredible news, the best news that has ever been given to man, God, whatever is preventing them from seeing just the the incredibleness, God, the, the goodness in that, Lord, would you break that barrier right now by the power of your spirit Let your love and mercy just overcome someone, Lord, in just a flood of grace. Lord, let them be in that place of Isaiah. Woe is me, for I am unclean. And God, let them see then that you can clean them. Do for them what they can never do for themselves. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who would be about doing your work joyfully getting in on what you're doing in this community around us going out and getting those whom you have already chosen Lord we need a revival in this area where we need an awakening a rediscovery of the gospel Lord this the whole region here is saturated with so much religion and has been for years and years and years. There's so many people who think they know what the good news is, but they really don't. They just heard of ways that they need to be better in order to make you happy. That's not good news. Lord, awaken us to the truth of who you are and what you have done that others may also know. And your name would be high and lifted up over this whole area. Holy Spirit, would you come and have your way now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.